Well, good morning. How are we doing today? <laughs> uh, it's great to see you this morning. Uh, welcome. Good to have you here. Good to be together. Uh, it's good to, uh, as we've been doing, going through this series called Unfinished. And um, last I checked, we're still unfinished. Um, we're still heading through this series. We're still a, sort of a group of unfinished people. So uh, I figured what we would do this morning, since we are now more than halfway through our series, um, to kind of go back and review some of the things that we've learned this morning. So I won't quiz you on this necessarily, but I just wanted to uh, sort of refresh our memories that we are in the middle of a series called Unfinished. It's based out of the book of Philippians. You guys know that. And the point of this entire series is that God has this unfinished work in the world that he wants to complete, he wants to finish, he's in the process of completing through his spirit, and oh, by the way, he likes to use unfinished people to accomplish that task. And so what we've been doing throughout this whole series is considering for ourselves, what is it that the, that's the unfinished work in this area of South Jersey? What's the unfinished work that is sort of residing within us, and what is it that God wants to complete in us? And how can we partner with God to complete that work to be an advocate and a partner with him. We talked about partnership the very first week in, in what God is doing. Um, from there, we've talked about things like um, to live as Christ, to die as gain, right? So the only way to complete the work is to live your life uh, alongside, through, and following after Jesus. That if you devote your life to anything other than him, uh, the sum total of your life at the end of the day will be something other than gain. It will not be gain. Paul is able to say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. So if we live our lives for anything else other than that, then to die is loss, to die is disappointment. It's not gain. Um, we've talked about things like uh, being the community of Jesus in public, the fact that we are not just uh, private citizens of this nation, right? This is a public kingdom, and so Jesus has an intention for us to be very public citizens in that kingdom, to talk about our faith, to influence people for the sake of the kingdom, uh, to, to be people who are good and want good for our neighbors, so that in doing so, they will see who we are and our actions and want to know more about what it is that Jesus is doing inside of us. The reason I review this is because it's easy in, in a series that's 12 weeks to kind of lose track of where we are and to forget all the stuff that we've learned up to this point. Because Paul really in this letter is sort of building a bridge from himself all the way in Rome, all these miles away to this church in Philippi, and he wants to establish one brick after another, the, the fact that God is with them and for them. And even though he's all this distance away and he can't be there himself, the fact that he wants them to do good things and to do great things for Jesus and his kingdom. The other reason I bring this up is because John Cope's going to be here in two weeks, and I hope you've been taking notes because he is going to quiz you. So, <laughs> some nervous laughter. I'm not kidding. I am kidding. Um, one of the things that's important, though, as we are sort of considering this, and Paul brings this up himself, is that it's important for us to have models of faith in our lives. It's important for us to have people that we can look to either around us or in our history or sometimes read about in Christian history past that, that we can consider the kind of obstacles that they've overcome, the kind of faith that they've shown, 
um, to encourage us in our faith. Because, see, the thing is, as people, we tend to, if we don't have a good example to live by, we tend to have no example of, a, at all. And so I know for, at least for guys, it's important for us to sort of see it modeled and then do it. This is the same thing growing up with my dad. He was a very handy guy, and a lot of he'd work on cars, and he'd work around the house. And a lot of what I'm able to do as, as sort of a homeowner today has to do with just observing the kinds of things that he would do and then mimicking those things in my life. If I didn't have him around to kind of show me, I wouldn't be able to make that up on my own. It was important for me to have a model. We were talking about this actually in um, Life Group this week, and um, the, the way that we were talking about it is that there, there's some of us in the group who grew up in sort of Christian families. We had great models of faith even within our home to, to model our own faith after. And the more we observed them, the more faithful we became, the more it became our faith and not just theirs. And so the, there's, a, a, I think, a major distinction between those people who have that kind of example in their very home and those people that didn't. Um, I grew up as sort of a hybrid in between the two. I grew up in church but didn't have a whole lot of faith going on at home. And so it's important for me to sort of find other models that I could build my faith from. And that actually happened very early on. I remember the, the first church that I was a part of, I, I became very, very close friends with my pastor. His name was Drew. And I, I've, I'm sure I've talked about him at some point in the past. But when I started sort of pursuing what I thought may be a calling in ministry, I started meeting with him for lunch. We met for lunch every week for two years, essentially. And I, I just, all I did was observe, ask questions, find out how he ticked, find out the way that he overcame problems, the way that he uh, you know, related to his family, the way that he did ministry. I just, I wanted to know about him. And through him, I figured out how to sort of do this thing called ministry. I actually base a lot of what I do and how I conduct myself around what I observe from him. If I didn't have him in my life to sort of show me those things, I think I would be far less effective in how I do ministry today. I remember another example that was important to me. If he was sort of the example of what pastoral care was all about, there was another woman in the congregation. Her name was Natalie. And she was sort of the woman of faith for me. Um, she was the faithful servant who would ask the question, what needs to be done around here and how can I be involved? She never wanted the spotlight herself. She never wanted people to sort of acknowledge what she had given. She never wanted to be the person up front on stage, um, you know, being recognized for the things that she was doing. But she was always asking the question, what's Jesus up to and how, how can I be a part of it? And her, we got a chance to do a lot of ministry together, and it was in those quiet moments of being able to pray together and to have conversations and observe some of the underlying ministry that she did in the church that I started to really, really appreciate what God was doing through her and using her for, because I became cognizant of the reality that if she hadn't played the role she did, our church wouldn't have nearly been effective as it was. She did so much behind the scenes that nobody even knew about um, that was vital to the way that church operated. It made us effective. So let me ask you this question. How many of you uh, sort of grew up within a Christian household? How many of you, that's, that's sort of your experience growing up. Okay. 
So that's sort of the faith of our fathers, right? You sort of inherit uh, the faith down through the ages, generation to generation. Uh, maybe it was your parents who the first time that they were believers, and then you kind of grew in them. Um, but that model, that was at home. I'm, I'm curious, though, for those of you who didn't have that experience, who is your model of faith? I'll ask that rhetorically. You don't have to shout out your answer to me. Uh, but who do you base your faith off of? Who is that model for you when you think of being an effective follower of Jesus, when you think of maybe even care and concern for other people, that you go to this person you think, I should sort of act in the same vein as that person? Or someone who's that faithful servant, you think to yourself, that's the kind of person that I want to grow into and, and sort of become. And even though they're imperfect, God has changed their heart, and they're acting out of that new heart, and I want to become like that. See, it's important for us to have these two sorts of things, this model of faith, for this reason. If we don't have models of faith that are actual, and what I mean by actual is that they are, are present in our lives, we know that there are other people who struggle but yet overcome various obstacles and move on to be great people of faith, men and women of faith, then we can start to convince ourselves that nobody really lives this way. Nobody really lives this way. I mean, sure, we have the Bible and all. Uh, we can read through the pages of Scripture and look at models like Moses and Abraham, um, Jesus, obviously, Paul, some of these other guys. And, and we sort of convince ourselves, yeah, they followed God and all, but their circumstances were extraordinary because God spoke to them specifically. God gave them incredible power. God could never do anything like that in my life. So we convince ourselves that nobody really lives this way. It's just the way that some people do. And obviously, they're extraordinary people, and I'm an ordinary person, so I can never live up to that. Um, there, there's a problem with this, uh, though. And I think Paul sort of addresses this. And uh, you're wondering why these two guys are standing on stage with me, are you? Uh, we're going to get to that in a second. But he, he sort of understands this as well. Because he realizes as he's telling them about God moving in them, that it's God that wills and works through them to act according to his good purpose, and that in turn they should work out their salvation with fear and trembling, agreeing with God and moving with him. That the likely thing that's on their mind is, yeah, that all sounds good and all, but who really lives this way? I mean, who, who's a really you know, decent example of this? Sure, you've already talked about Jesus. We get that. Do you have anybody that wasn't sinless, like wasn't God? Anybody that falls into a different category, maybe some category that I might fall into? And in response to that sort of hypothetical question, Paul raises two examples right from their very church um, that demonstrate this kind of both self-sacrificing leadership and self-sacrificing service. Um, two examples. One of these guys is a professional, and we'll use this guy over here to sort of be the professional. His name is Timothy. Um, he's sort of like the professional pastor. I know that you don't know any pastors that dress this way anymore, but we'll use it as an example. He kind of looks like me, so um, I, I like that fact also. Gosh, you guys just don't get any jokes this morning, do you? Are you still asleep? <laughs> uh, and then on the other side we have sort of the soldier, the servant soldier. We've already talked about one soldier this morning who's in Afghanistan. But he's going to represent this guy called Epaphroditus. 
Um, and so these two guys make up Paul's example for how this actually works out in real life. He's saying, God is working in you. He's changing your desire. He's giving you a new heart. You should agree with him and work out your salvation. And oh, by the way, there's these two guys. You know all about them. One's a professional. One's a, a fellow soldier. And I want you to model their faith and to honor people that are like them. And so that's what he does. So we're, what we're going to do this morning is uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of the story on each of these guys. We're going to read them in, in the scripture, and then we're going to draw some conclusions from either of them, and then at the end we'll sort of bring them together and talk about some implications for our church and where we're headed. Okay? So we'll take Timothy first, and Timothy's story here starts in verse 19, and so we'll pick up the story there. Um, chapter 2, verse 19 of Philippians says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because, he, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. Literally, he's saying, I want to know, there may be a trial coming, and so I want to see if I'm going to get out or if I'm not. As soon as I know what's going to happen to me, I want to send him to you. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. So what he's saying is, you know, I think things are going to turn out well for me, and I may be able to come, but I want to send him first. So let me give you a little bit of the story on Timothy. Um, Timothy, in all likelihood, and we, we only know a little bit about him. It's based in Acts 16. Um, but what we do know about him, we can sort of draw the rest out. Uh, we do know that, that he had a mother and a grandmother who were very instrumental in his faith. Both his mother and grandmother were sort of um, Jewish people first. They didn't know about Jesus. Um, they were uh, believers in the Old Testament. They knew a lot of Bible stories. And uh, we know from Acts 16 that, that Timothy's father was a Greek. So he was sort of a hybrid between... Jewish and, and Greek. Um, we don't know much else about his father, but we know more about his mother, including her name. And so a lot of people have, have taken from that that Timothy may have grown up in a single-parent home, that he may have lost his dad along the way by the time that Paul sort of came around for his second missionary journey. Um, so as a young man, he would have known a lot of Bible stories. This guy would have been in Sunday school every week he would have read the scriptures on his own. They would have talked about it in their homes. He would have known the stories very well of Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon and all these Old Testament characters, but not necessarily Jesus. And so one day, Paul comes to town. He's a young guy and uh, introduces him and his family to Jesus, and they become believers. And so Paul is sort of sweeping through there on his way to other areas, and he leaves behind this family and this new church. And uh, Timothy gets a new heart, right? We talked about that last week. And he starts to really grow in his faith. He starts to really um, come into his own and, uh, and to know Jesus in a really significant way. Because by the time that Paul returns, he comes back on another missionary journey. He reconnects with Timothy. That's actually in Acts 16. And the two of them hit it off immediately. Timothy has grown to such an extent that Paul sees something very significant in him, and he says, I want you to come with me. 
I don't even want you to stay here. I want you to come with me and to observe the things that God's doing in my life and to, to come along and see all the stuff that's happening. And so Timothy goes along with him. He sort of becomes the understudy for Paul. And more than that, he actually becomes like a son to Paul. Paul actually refers to Timothy as his son five times throughout Scripture. Uh, in one letter, in 1 Timothy, when he's giving Timothy instructions on how to lead this church, he actually calls Timothy my true son. And that's actually very true. In the, in the ancient world, um, your son was the person who carried on your family business, right? That even happens today in a lot of instances where you sort of grow up and you take on the family trade. And if your dad's a carpenter, you become a carpenter and you carry on that business. And so in the same way, Timothy is like this adopted son to Paul who's carrying on his mission. And so they go on and they plant churches together. They write scripture together. Uh, they do missionary journeys. Uh, in every sense of the way, Timothy is a professional minister. He, he is the, the quintessential professional pastor. There's nobody else right in the church world other than Paul and some of the other church leaders. And now Timothy is this new generation of leaders that's rising up. Um, and so this is what he says about him. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. It's in verse 20 and 21. That's an amazing phrase, isn't it? I have no one else like him. Can you imagine how many people Paul encountered on his journeys? Countless people. I mean, he had established at least seven churches, we know from Revelation, probably many more than that. The hundreds and hundreds of people that he's encountered. And he says, I'm sending Timothy to you. I have nobody else like him. I mean, what a letter of recommendation that is, right? There, let me say this. There are a lot of people in ministry. There are a lot of people that get into professional ministry. They put on the suit and tie. They carry the Bible. They put on the smile. They have their hair combed right and cut right. Um, and there's a lot of people in ministry that do things for themselves. A lot of people in ministry who use ministry as a front for their own self-enjoyment, their own self-benefit, their own self-glorification. They do what's right for them. They base what they do off of the money that they want, the fame that they want to accumulate, the power that they're able to get through ministry, the glory and the credit that they're able to accumulate over time. They become upright, they become puffed up in their own eyes and not in, the, in God's eyes. There's a lot of people in ministry. What does he say about Timothy. I have nobody else like him. When it comes to Timothy, he asks two things. What's good for Jesus and what's good for people? If I know those two things, I know what to do. He has concern for other people in a way that nobody else that Paul's encountered has. That is pastoral ministry. That is what it means to be a shepherd. That's what it means to have humility is to put the needs of Jesus and the needs of people together and to use that as your compass to tell you where to go. That's a tall order, let me say that. It's a very difficult thing to do. But it is the definition of humility. We've already looked at humility through the eyes of Christ, right? Who, though being God, made himself nothing, submitted himself to death on a cross. Why? So that he could include all of us in God's plan, God's unfinished mission for the world. 
And now we have this other guy, Timothy, who is the, the example of how to live that way in actual practicality. He says, this guy is a shepherd in every sense of the word. And he puts those two needs together. And for Paul, those two needs are actually one and the same. If you remember Paul's story, uh, Paul was this guy who was persecuting the church. He was actually killing Christians and trying to stamp out this growing movement all around the Middle East. He's trying to put out the fires, so to speak, of what God was doing. And then on the road to Damascus, very famous phrase, um, Jesus encounters him and, and says very specifically, why are you persecuting who? Me. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus is gone, right? He's already been crucified. He's out of here. There's no, all that's left is the church. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? See, I think that influenced the way that Paul saw his ministry and is now passing that on to Timothy and saying, somebody who considers the needs of people and the needs of Jesus is actually doing the same thing. They're being Jesus. They're considering those two things together. That's the picture of humility. So let me ask this. We'll kind of draw some conclusions from Timothy's life. Would somebody be able to write that kind of letter of recommendation about you? If somebody were to say and describe you to someone else, I had to do this just this week and give a recommendation for someone. Um, Would somebody be able to say that about you? I have no one like them. They have such concern for other people. They care so much about others. They have such a pastoral heart about them. Would somebody be able to say that about you? If I were to call up a previous pastor and say, tell me about so-and-so because they're now in my church, what would they say? It becomes a scary situation because so often we tend to transition from church to church based on what? Not others' needs, our needs, right? We want to find a new church based on what's the better children's ministry, the better worship, the better preaching, the better whatever. We don't do it based on the concern of other people often. At least that's been my experience. And here's the thing with churches. They're so scattered, they're so divided in some sense that, that there is no connection. And so we know that if something happens in one place, we can just go to another place and that sense of anonymity will protect us and we can have a new beginning. Um, so what would someone else say about you? Would they be able to write that kind of letter of recommendation? I have no one else like him. I have no one else like her who shows such faith, who has a concern for other people. And secondly, I would ask this. Who needs you to be a Timothy to them? Who is there, in, maybe in our midst, maybe in your workplace, maybe in your neighborhood, um, who is in need of someone who's able to kind of lay down their stuff and pick up someone else's stuff and say, I'm here for you, I'm concerned about you, this is why I'm here. I'm here to be a Timothy. You may not say it that way, but that's kind of the intent. Who needs you to be that person? Here's what's happened um, for me. Many times we can, if we don't have a Paul or a Timothy in our life, it becomes very difficult for us to go and be that kind of person to someone else. Because again, we get sort of self-focused on our own stuff. We think, well, God didn't give me a Paul. 
I don't have anybody who cares about my needs and my interests. How can I go and care for other people? See, Paul, for, for Timothy, was sort of this father figure who, who he could go to in anything. He had any you know, concern, ministry, any question about what to do, and, and he could go. For a period of time, I had that in my life. I had someone exactly like a Paul. But since that time, I haven't. And so I, have, I, I can kind of um, take two different directions in my life. I, I have a choice in front of me in how I respond to a passage like this. I can either stamp my foot and go, God, I want a Paul. I want somebody in my life who is able to build into me and, and care about me and, and give me all the things I need. Or I can kind of do another route and say, Lord, what is it that I can do to prepare myself to be a Paul for someone else? So do you see the difference there? One is, as we talked about last week, sort of the grumbling and, and complaining and arguing route. And the other route says, God, what are you doing in me today, and how can I prepare myself for a day when I can go and invest in someone else? That, that day may be today. You may be saying to yourself, there's someone that I need to, to invest myself in to raise them up so that they can be that sort of next generation leader. We need to be really good about doing that as a church. Otherwise, the current generation is going to sort of fade into the distance and there won't be anything to sort of build the church up from that point forward. So you have this choice in front of you. How are you going to respond to a passage like this? Are you going to demand a Paul or are you going to be a Timothy? I think that's the question before us. The other uh, example that we have, if we're going from the, the professional minister over here, is sort of the self-sacrificing servant um, to my left. It's a guy named Epaphroditus, and uh, so we're going to read his story, and then I'll give you a little bit of his background. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because he heard because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and, that, and I may have less anxiety. I love that verse. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him. Because he almost died for the work of Christ, he risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Now we can read that last verse in kind of a harsh manner, but what he's saying is, everybody couldn't come and see me. I'm, you know, six or eight hundred miles away, and so you sent a representative, and he fulfilled that work in a way that you couldn't because you're so far away. So let me give you the story on Epaphroditus. Unlike Timothy, we don't really know much about uh, how or when he became a Christian. We really don't know much about his background at all. Um, the only place that he's mentioned in Scripture is twice in this book of, of Philippians. Other than that, we have no mention of him in Scripture. Not a major character, doesn't have major accolades, but this is the one place that Paul makes a big deal of, about the service of a guy like Epaphroditus. So in, in all likelihood, this guy is not a professional pastor, He's not in any sort of paid ministry position. He is just a guy 
who loves Jesus and wanted to serve his church. Um, so this guy, he may be on the finance team. Uh, he may be part of the action team. He has, prob in, in all likelihood, another job where he serves um, day in and day out, but he loves Jesus, loves his church, loves people, and so he asks the question, what is Jesus doing and how can I be a part of it? Those are the things that are on Epaphroditus' mind. And so in every sense of the word, he is dependable in everything. He is the kind of guy that carries out a task with precision, very much like a soldier, which is exactly why Paul calls him a fellow soldier in Christ. You have to remember, he's probably talking to this church in Philippi, a lot of former soldiers. And he says, you want to know what a soldier is? This guy's a soldier. Um, and so along the way, what we're told is that he gets sick. Actually, he almost dies. Um, it, it would have taken about six weeks to travel the distance from Philippi to Rome. And with the sickness, some, some scholars even uh, make the argument that he could have been out of commission for months, depending on the kind of illness he had contracted. And so Epaphroditus has a very uh, sort of important question to answer after he's sick. And I, so I want to ask you what you would do in this situation. You're sort of halfway between these two worlds. One is safety and one is pressing on towards your mission. You're sort of halfway there. You've been sick for months. You're tired. You're hungry. You're probably angry. What do you do? You get up and you go home and say, the heck with this. I'm out of here. I didn't sign up for this kind of ministry. I just signed up to take a letter to somebody. And now, now I'm, you know, I've been sick for months. Heck with this. Somebody else can bring it. I'm done, guys. Or do you press on? In Epaphroditus' case, he presses on. He completes the work that, that God had given him, that his church had given him. Instead of giving up, he completes. And I don't want you to miss this, because this is incredibly important. Um, Paul says this guy is not just a brother, co-worker, fellow soldier. He's also what? your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. So what the Philippian church was doing is they were taking a collection. I think I mentioned this the very first week. They were taking an offering for Paul because Paul needs stuff in prison. He needs people to care for him, to get him food, uh, to, to purchase clothing. He needs resources to be able to do that because they, they aren't provided for him in a Roman jail cell. And so this Philippian church is getting up everything that they can spare into one offering. Who do they give it to? Epaphroditus. That's dependability right there. Can you imagine giving sacrificially, putting it all in one pot? He could have done anything. He could have gone anywhere. Uh, he could have been robbed along the way, which is a very likely scenario in that day. It's an incredibly important task. And yet we think it's just carrying something from one place to another. And he does it, though. He, he's the dependable servant. And because he continues on, because he goes the extra distance, actually makes it there, Paul says, I'm going to send him back to you with some instructions. Guess what we have in our possession because Epaphroditus did his work? We have the book of Philippians. If he got up from after being sick and said, the heck with this, I'm going home, you can delete one book from your Bible. That's how important his work was. 
That's how incredibly important his mission was. We look at a guy like that and we say, you know, it's just a FedEx job. But it isn't. In every sense of the way, if, if Timothy is sort of the pastoral heart for people, then Epaphroditus is the I will do anything to get the job done servant. I'm going to attack this thing like a soldier and put your money on it because it's getting done. Incredibly important for the church, not just for that church, but for us today. We still benefit from his work. That's how important it was. So I want you to know that when you serve Jesus, you are doing incredibly important things. By virtue of the fact that you are a follower of Christ, everything you do is vocational. And here's the proof. Because if it were just about people in ministry, if it were just about the pastor who's standing up front and giving a good sermon and the worship team and all that, then the, the only example Paul would have given is Timothy. Timothy's my man. He does it all. Follow Timothy. Is that the way our Bible reads? Not the way mine reads. We have this other guy over here who is the faithful servant of Christ, who took time off of work to go on this missionary journey to send this great offering to Paul so that he could be blessed and so that the church could be blessed in response. All of life is sacred. All of life belongs to God, and because of that, all of life is ministry. I'm trying to attack this from a bunch of different ways because we've talked about the same thing a number of different times, but I want you to see it I want it to be ingrained into the way that you live your life, the way you approach your job, the way that you relate to your neighbors. All of life is ministry, and this guy is the proof. Here's a guy who seems like he's doing the FedEx thing. Go and take something to Paul, and yet he's doing kingdom work. So let me ask this. We'll draw this conclusion from his life. How faithful of a person are you? How faithful are you? When someone gives you a task, do you complete it? Not just in the church, but in the world. When someone says, I want you to do something, do you say, this is my task, and I'm going to focus on it in the same way as Epaphroditus did his? Because it's ministry. It's part of what it means to be in his kingdom. Second thing I would ask is this. What task that you're aware of needs an Epaphroditus kind of focus? What thing that's out there that you know needs to get done that's not being filled, that if you don't fill it, we're going to be missing out on that important chunk, the same way that if he didn't fulfill his duty, we'd be missing a book of the Bible. In the same way, what is the important thing, the whole that's missing, that needs to get done? You see it, you know it, but you, you haven't done it yet. What is that thing that needs an Epaphroditus kind of focus and attention that you and only you can give to it? Now, there are so many people out there, frankly, that want a title, that want authority, they want a place, they want their name to be something, but they have no intention of serving. There are far too many leaders like that. They want to be lifted up in the eyes of other people instead of being the lowest of the low and having God lift us up. 
They want authority, but they don't want to use that authority to ask what's good for Jesus and what's good for people. Um, when I was growing up, I've mentioned this before, I played a lot of soccer. And um, I remember one, one game in particular uh, when I was in middle school. Um, there, there was a guy who was guarding me, and he happened to get the ball. I was sort of behind him. And um, to sort of fend me off, he, uh, instead of using his arms, he used his head. And I was a little closer to him than I think he thought. And he ended up headbutting head me, like right in the eye socket. It was one of the most painful experiences I've ever had. And, and immediately my eyes started watering and sort of swelled up, and I got taken off the field. And um, I, I'm sitting on the sideline. My eye is sort of throbbing, and I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. I'm on the sideline. I've got two good legs. I've got my arms. I have one good eye. Why am I sitting on the sideline? You know? Like, I should be back out there in the game. So I sort of hobble up, and I'm like, Coach, I'm okay. Can you please put me in again? And he's like, oh, I don't think so. And I'm like, come on, I'm, I'm fine. I can see out of one good eye. I'll, I'll be okay. <laughs> you kind of know how this is going already. Um, so I think against his better judgment, he, he put me into the game. And uh, my eye was under control at that point, but I couldn't see a thing out of it. So I'm, I'm trying to view everything out of one eye. You know what happens when you try to view life out of one eye? What's off? Yeah. Yeah. What's really important when a ball is coming at you? <laughs> you need to be able to judge the distance that that ball is. Guess how you do that? With two eyes. <laughs> When you only have one eye, you have absolutely no ability to tell how far something is away. And so the ball is coming to you, and you're kicking before the ball even gets there. You look like a complete idiot. And this is what happened in the game. It took like 30 seconds, and my coach was like, you're out. You know, you're done. Here's my point. You need two eyes to see in three dimensions. Isn't that correct? With just one eye, I can't tell necessarily how far away you are. With two eyes, now what happens is you create a triangle between you and the object you're viewing, and based on that triangulation, you can tell how far away that object is from you. Without that, you have no perception. You have no ability to see in three dimensions. That's why they tell you to have somebody come and pick you up from the eye doctor when they do something to one eye. Because it's not a good idea for you to be driving around with that one eye. People are like, what? I did it. <laughs> In the same way, let me use this as an illustration. We need two examples to get a complete picture of what Paul's talking about in terms of the kind of leadership and service that we need in a church. We tend to gravitate towards one or the other. And so we do this dance. We Sometimes we'll think, well, all we need is a good pastor. All we need is the guy that cares about people and gives a good sermon puts on the tie, brings his Bible to church, and pray, plays the professional role. If we have that guy, we'll, we're, we have no worries in the world. Right? We've done this. I've done this. Uh, on the other side, some of us tend to say, forget pastors. We don't need any of that. We don't need people to teach. We, we, all we need is servants. If we have maybe one eh, halfway decent 
guy who can dress sort of normal on a Sunday morning and, and kind of read his Bible pretty well. But we have a load of servants in the church. Now we can go places. Forget the leadership. We'll kind of cast all those people out. We just need people who are humble and need to serve and all that stuff. But what happened? Both are an incomplete picture, right? If you have one but not the other, then you're never going anywhere. If you have neither, you're really in trouble, right? And so many churches that, that I'm aware of, you're probably aware of too, only have people that think about themselves and want to do their own thing and people that care only about lifting them, them own, their, their own selves up in ministry. And the church can get so far in that kind of mentality that it can't go the places that we're trying to go. I'll tell you that. We need people, not just one, by the way, not just a single pastor who's willing to do this. We need a number of people who are willing to put the concerns of others above themselves and play that pastoral shepherding role in the life of this community. At the same time, we need more than one, more than even a group of people who are willing to step up and say, I'm going to be dependable. I don't care if I get any credit for what I do or acclamation. I just want to serve and I want to ask the question, what's Jesus doing and how can I be a part of it? We have both of these things. Now we got something. Now we're going places. But it's so easy for us, even as we're looking at this, even as we're considering this for our own congregation, to hold up people like them and say, wow, what great men of God. What great examples. Gee, I wish we had people around here like that. Right? You ever do that? You ever go, well, you know, if only we had better guitar players, if only we had better servants, if only we had, if only we had, if only we had. Here's what I think Paul would say, because he says it here. So then welcome him in the Lord, he's talking about Epaphroditus, with great joy. And oh, by the way, what's it say? Honor people like him. It's not just about him. It's not just about Timothy. It's about seeking out finding those people who are playing these roles in our congregation, and it's about encouraging them and, and saying, you're doing a great thing. Keep it up. Keep going. I want to honor what you're doing. You're on the right path. Keep it up. Keep going for it. Jesus sees it. He, he loves what you're doing. Keep going. God is with you. Do it for him. 